This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Happy summer, Dan. Indeed. How did you spend the uh, the the solstice? Um, I was hanging out in the yard, uh, watching the sunset. It was a beautiful evening. Longest <laughs> day now, of the year is beautiful out here in Burbank. But unfortunately, now that means the days are getting shorter. Uh, well, we still got summer to go, so don't get me all depressed about winter yet. So. <laughs> That's my job, Leslie, is attempting to get people depressed for absolutely no good reason. Because In this particular case, the reason for getting depressed, the Earth orbiting the sun. <laughs> well, I'm a summer girl, so this is my time of year to thrive. So anyway, you are listening to our 175th episode. And thank you, as always, for being a loyal listener. And we're going to start out with a scheduling note. Speaking of summer, we're going to be off July 1st for the Independence holiday while I'm on vacation. So mahalo for your patience until our next episode, which will be July 8th. Indeed. So so just know no episode next week. So take this episode in bits and pieces. Quick bites, as it were. I see what you did there, Dan. Absolutely nothing is what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get things started with where we usually begin, the week's top headlines. Number one. Leading off in overall deals, Emmy-winning Pose star Billy Porter is returning to FX with a first-look producing deal. And a Black Lady sketch show creator and friend of the five, Robin Thede, has set a three-year deal with HBO. Yay, Robin Thede. Yay, Billy Porter. Yay, Billy Porter, too. Absolutely. Uh, in new series orders, the Obama's Higher Ground shingle has set its first live-action scripted drama series with the darkly comedic thriller Bodkin, starring Will Forte. If that would have been the thing that you would have guessed would be the first live-action scripted drama series from the Obama's Higher Ground shingle, then you are much more prescient than I am. So, yay! <laughs> Or God's Bodkins. Anyway, Apple is venturing into the Gilded Age territory with a drama series, The Buccaneers, based on an unfinished novel by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edith Wharton, starring Christine Forseth, Alicia Bowe, and Josie Toda. In renewal news, Peacock has picked up its Craig Robinson-led comedy, Killing It, from the showrunners behind Brooklyn Nine-Nine for a second season. 
And AMC has given a speedy second season renewal to Dark Winds. Dan, I think you were a fan of the latter. I definitely liked the first six episodes of Dark Winds, um, which for some reason sort of slipped through the cracks conversationally. I one of the last couple of weeks when I, I was doing too Critics much Corner. TV, Dan. There, there really is just too much TV and absolutely got to the end of whichever podcast that was and went, oops, forgot about that one. Um, so yeah, anyway, no, the, the first six episodes, which represent the first season are absolutely more than anything else, a prelude or a launch pad to future adaptations of thingies. So, uh, so definitely glad to see this one getting a pickup and glad just for all of the people involved for whom this was a, a multi-year. 30 well, multi years. Yes. As detailed expertly in a Hollywood Reporter cover story by our colleague Rebecca Keegan. I was I was set, either setting up the plug or going to plug it. But yes, a great cover story by Rebecca Keegan and just a good story of a long journey to bring uh, Tony Hillerman's books to the screen. So I'm really actually looking forward to the second season significantly more than you know, the first season, which was good, but really setting things up. Anyway, in pilot news, and this is pretty amusing, actually. It was just announced on Thursday that uh, Mandy Patinkin and Catherine Grody's real-life marriage, which you may have seen play out rather hilariously on social media over the past few years, has inspired a Showtime comedy called Seasoned, which is created and co-written by the couple's son, and his partner. So that sounds very amusing. And and honestly, the dynamic between those two playing out on social media has been a tremendous joy to watch, sometimes very funny, sometimes very emotional. If they're able to channel, I don't know, let's say 50% of the emotional reactions that people get to them on Twitter, it will be very likable. Whether you can script that stuff, well, that's not for us to worry about. And wrapping up headlines on the development front, Kit Harrington will reprise his Emmy-nominated role as Jon Snow in a Game of Thrones sequel series that is in early development at HBO. It marks the first time HBO is going to reopen the flagship series rather than developing a prequel, which obviously they have House of the Dragon coming later this summer. Lots going on over in, in Game of Thronesville. So... Elsewhere at HBO Max and in one of uh, my favorite stories of the week, Hacks breakout Meg Stalter is getting her own HBO Max show and it's inspired by her life. It's called Church Girls and it is in development at HBO Max. Yep, that one definitely just a matter of time given the degree to which her character on Hacks has been a breakout on that particular show and... Yeah, kind of kind of a no brainer for a very, very funny person and a scene stealer to see what will happen if someone actually builds a show around her. So definitely looking looking forward to that much more than a Jon Snow Game of Thrones series. But also wise for the platform that has her on hacks to reteam with her and stay in business with her in this expanded role. So obviously makes things a lot easier when you're working on the same platform. This is, again, a great project that will be produced in-house by HBO Max and A24. So really smart for HBO Max to stay in business with one of their breakout stars. And yeah, the, as for the Game of Thrones piece of it, you know, David Zaslav is now running the show over at Warner Brothers Discovery. If he says, go ahead, crack open, you know, the end of one of your biggest, easily the biggest franchise in HBO history, go for it. So I think the, you know, the shackles have been taken off. Well, you know, 
obviously even now with Benioff and Weiss over at Netflix with a producing deal. So their hands are off all of things Game of Thrones. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. So we don't have news on a writer just yet. But uh, yeah, stay tuned to THR and our great colleague, James Hibbert, who remains all over the Game of Thrones beat. Number two. Up second, one of our favorite recurring segments, what the bleep is up with, in this case, the T-Nets. Yeah, this is also a recurring segment as we talk about these idiots, too. And I don't mean to call them idiots. I mean, it's it's a sad day over there with everything that, that's going on there. But this has been a narrative that I feel like, Dan, that you and I have talked about on this show at least five times. You know, maybe this is something we talk about more than Jeopardy. I don't know. It feels that way. But, you know, look, we've been talking for a very long time about the future of these two linear cable networks and what's going to happen if they're going to stay in in the scripted originals and even alternative originals business. You know, looking at at the state of, of our industry over the past few years, Every time that I that I interviewed an exec over there, anytime I there was a big story coming out of there, I always said, get someone on our podcast. We talk about them all the time. It is not clear what the future of these platforms are. And in that case, every time I interviewed Brett Weitz, who is GM of TNT and TBS and True TV, he always said the same thing. We're sticking in it. We're here to stay. We're here to stay. So now that David Zaslav is overseeing it, yeah, Brett Weitz his position was eliminated in May and you're looking at a dwind rapidly dwindling slate. So what we're seeing in a larger sense is David Zaslav tearing down what was TNT and TBS. Remember when those platforms each, when those networks each had like 10 or 12 scripted shows, it was, you know, Rizzoli and Isles was a huge hit for them. They had a ton of big, broad hits, same thing on the comedy side. And now, well, let's see. In recent weeks, this week, we had news that Snowpiercer, which we've detailed a lot on the show about, what, four showrunners, two directors, two networks, and now it's going to be four total seasons. So the fourth, previously announced fourth season will come to, will be its final season that will air next year. And that follows news that TBS dating show The Big D, which featured alums from The Bachelorette, was dropped mere weeks before it was slated to debut on TBS. That's a big pill to swallow financially. You're basically saying, we produced this show, it was ready to go, we're going to kill it because we're going to save the money on on marketing and promotion. So baffling to me why you wouldn't just dump it and air it and, and see what you can get from that. Elsewhere, you're looking at other executives following Brett White's out the door. So uh, what we're seeing now is something that we've been talking about again on our podcast for a very long time. TNT is probably going to wind up a place for alternative programming and syndicated repeats. TBS will be a home for a lot of sports, and they'll probably share a lot of programming. I think we had something uh, on the site recently about how they were going to share some uh, some sport or another or simulcast something across both networks. You'll probably see them dump off you know some other HBO Max stuff and use that as a second window there if they can with the way that they have done pre- before with, I think it was Doom Patrol and Titans, and I think maybe even the flight attendant got an episode or two on the cable networks. So when you're looking at what remains, they already canceled the last OG after four seasons. This whole thing started with the decision to scrap a show called Kill the Orange-Faced Bear starring Damon Wayans. That was done a week before the 10-episode show was supposed to go into production, and that was a project Brett White's bid for five years ago and was ultimately outbid, and it went to Comedy Central. Comedy Central, obviously, we saw what happened there. They were really out of scripted originals, so when the option for that came out and it was shopped, White snapped it up, and they had a big casting coup with Damon Wayans Jr., who everyone has pursued for years, and then now it's it's dead, so... 
Looking at what remains, TBS has a roster of originals, including the fourth season of anthology Miracle Workers, the Nassim Pedrad half-hour Chad, plus the animated comedy American Dad, which is renewed through next year. And then you've got Full Frontal with Sam B, which for me personally, this is just my two cents reading the tea leaves. I wouldn't be surprised to see that that show migrate to either HBO or HBO Max for first run episodes. Which I feel like was a thing we talked to at least in to some degree with Samantha B about mm-hmm. way back a thousand years ago when she was on the podcast. Yeah, so. That was during the, the AT&T reign. So now you're under under David Zaslav, who has to cut three billion dollars from from his combined budgets from the company. So there's a lot going on. And I can't imagine that Zaslav would be happy if he knew that that TNT recently sent out $150 plus Aviator Nation hoodies to press to mark the final season of Animal Kingdom. That's a big marketing budget for a show in its what fourth season, fifth season. I don't know that not a lot of people really talk about. So you've got the conclusion of Animal Kingdom next year or this year, Snowpiercer next year. And then guess what? TNT out of scripted. No more scripted originals. So. Well, at least they'll always have the NBA. And I didn't get one of those hoodies, so I guess that's why you're not going to hear a rave review for Animal Kingdom Season 6 on this podcast from me. That and I haven't watched Animal Kingdom since eight episodes into the first season. One of those two things. I don't know. Whichever. Well, one of the things that I had been hearing was that they the the executive team over at the TNETs had been spending basically wanted to burn through their budget because they weren't sure if they were ever going to get any additional funds once the new regime came in. And that new regime is now overseen by Discovery's Kathleen Finch, who had handles all of the linear networks on the Discovery side and was recently given the same from the Warner, uh, the Warner Media platform. So that's a lot. And there's been, again, more executive departures on the scripted and unscripted side. You saw the head of Food Network recently leave. So lots going on there. And a reminder, this is all part of a larger effort for D- David Zaslav to deliver $3 billion in cost savings. So lots going on. But yeah, this is hardly a surprise. <sighs> Well, uh, we'll see if this is the last that we need to check in on what's happening with TBS or TNT, or if this is just going to be the prelude to whatever the next evolution of those brands are. Because those are, I mean, those are, those are big brands and those are big brands that were really, really central to, I don't want to, it's not the earliest stages of, of peak TV, but they were a big part of it. Yeah, they really were. Uh, you know, TNT in particular, maybe those were not for the most part shows that were big awards players or critics top 10 players, though certainly the closer won some awards and stuff. But yeah, they, I mean, much more than most of the entities currently existing, TNT had an actual brand for its drama series. And yeah, I mean, I'm just going to run through a couple Rizzoli and Isles. Falling Skies, Murder in the First, The Librarians, which continues on on, I think, what, Freebie. Um, they've had everything, including Raised by Wolves, which was they developed that and it was moved to HBO Max, where it was recently canceled as part of the whole Warner uh, Warner Brothers Discovery cutbacks. Tell Me Your Secrets, which they they shipped over to Amazon. and I think it was renewed. Claws ended last year after four seasons. You know, you're looking at some of these other shows. Public Morals was a big one. Agent X, Legends, Perception, this thing called King and Maxwell, which was a one and done. 
you know, Mob City. I remember the Frank Darabont show that uh, with John Bar- uh, John Barenthal's casting officially spoiling a huge reveal in The Walking Dead. I, who can forget that? I mean, I can because I had to cover that shit. But, you know, and you're looking <laughs> back at, at TBS. Remember when they revived Cougar Town after ABC's cancellation? They had stuff called, what, Ground Floor, Men at Work, uh, Wrecked, People of Earth. I know you liked a couple of these. Angie Tribeca, The Detour. Uh, Final Space, which was moved to Adult Swim, The Guest Book, The Last OG we just talked about, Obliterated. They just had a comedy from the uh, that was a, a a comedy from the creators of Cobra Kai, which just moved to Netflix with a straight to series pickup after it was picked up straight to series a few years ago for T for TBS. So the writing has been on the wall, but the executives there hadn't really decided to participate in that narrative. So. I am going to say with some sincerity that I have definitely heard of most of those shows that you just listed, but I have definitely not heard of all of those shows that you listed. And you, one could go on. I mean, you know, Major Crimes was a long-running hit for, for TNT. The Alienist, after a long, long journey going to various different networks and homes, it ended up on TNT and aired a couple seasons. And I think it got some award nominations in technical categories and stuff. And yeah. More uh, recently, TBS had a show that they developed from uh, called, from Lena Waithe called 20s. And that was moved over to BET. Again, you're moving from Warner, from one conglomerate Warners to, to another in Viacom or Paramount Global as it's called now. But, you know, when you're, when you see all of these shows moving homes and getting canceled after only a handful of seasons and the development, even though you're continuing to announce new pickups and nothing comes from these big development slates that you put execs on the phone for, the writing is right there. So. Well, pour pour one w- out for the for the so-called T-Nets and that name that, well, we always hated. <laughs> Indeed. Number three. With summer arriving and the year half over, it's time to take a look at the best TV of the year so far. And joining us this week to do so is Dan's other partner in crime, the great Angie Hahn, THR's TV critic. Thanks so much for joining us, Angie. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very perplexed, mostly by the amount of crime that apparently I'm committing. So I think that's probably where we ought to start is with crime. I mean, if you create if you do any more crimes, they're going to make a 10 episode miniseries about you. (sighs) I would rather just be a documentary or a podcast. All right. Well, that seems like a great place for us to start. You know, like you you guys have been saying, there have been a a tremendous amount of rip from the headlines miniseries. What has did any of them make your top 10 uh, shows of the year so far? I think you I think you had one, Angie, so (laughs) go with it. Yeah, so I actually ended up really liking Under the Banner of Heaven. Um, I feel like my problem with a lot of these kind of true crime shows is that sometimes they don't feel like they have that much to say other than like, oh, wow, can you believe this crazy thing happened? But that one I thought was very thoughtful about interrogating, you know, not just like who did it and why, but then going back even farther than that to look at the entire culture that made such a crime possible and made it play out the way that it did. So that one I found really fascinating. Plus the performances are just exceptional. Andrew Garfield, it's hardly news when he's good in something, but he's very good in it. And I loved Wyatt Russell. Between this and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I feel like he's doing this thing where he's like, yes, I know I look very wholesome and All-American, but that can make me seem even more menacing. And he does that to very good effect here. And everyone who hasn't watched Lodge 49 really should watch Lodge 49 so that they can talk about Wyatt Russell in Lodge 49. Also, Lodge 49 definitely would have been the 10 best shows of among the 10 best shows of 2022, but it didn't air in 2022. So 
Yeah. That's a pretty uh, big butt, I think, though. It, yeah. Oh, it's, it's definitely, <laughs> yeah. it, it is definitely a justifiable explanation for why it was not in our article available to read on uh, HollywoodReporter.com. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't air in 2020 either or 2021. Uh, whenever it lasts, just in case I can do this all day. Wondering why we left it off our list? That's why. <laughs> whenever it last aired, it made my top ten for that year, whatever that year 2019. was. So, God, that's that's so so. In the before. <sighs> anyway, so yeah, so definitely that is one of the better of the true crime things. If that's where we're starting off, I think we probably I, I maybe could have justified including. Uh, the dropout and the staircase, which were probably my two favorite of of the genre. I thought that the dropout was surprisingly funny, wonderful ensemble. Amanda Seyfried was uh, giving a terrific performance. So those things all put that in its own category. And then the staircase did a very good job, I thought, of kind of getting underneath the surface of the true crime veneer and talking about true crime in terms of how it has been represented in podcasts and in documentaries as well. So I thought those two were both very well above average. A lot of the various true crime things this year, though, have been completely and totally forgettable. When are you next likely to think about Super Pumped, Angie? I half forgot it already happened. I feel like the only reason I remember it happened is because I keep lumping it in my head with the three other shows that are exactly like it as just a thing that took up a lot of my time this year. Uh, yes, there was there was the WeWork thing. There was uh, you luckily got to be spared the Joe and Carol thing on Peacock. And you also got spared the Renee Zellweger in a fat suit thing on NBC. So, yay. The thing about Pam. Indeed, those were. Definitely and you forgot about Candy. I, I was not spared that one. Were, <laughs> the best thing about that was the cameos. Mm. I did not like the cameos in that I one at all, actually. If you're talking about like the two guest stars that appear midway through the season, uh, that was like I think that was actually the exact point where I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm done with this show, and I wasn't done. I'm a critic. I take my job very seriously, so I still watch the rest of it. But you know, I was emotionally done with the show. Yeah, I mean, it was a fun cameo, but it was it took me right out of the show too. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still thought that one was better than several of the others. That is that is what I will say about Candy, is that it was not great, but there were definitely crime dramas that were significantly worse this spring. So three cheers to anyone who was spared any or all of them. <laughs> and then you've got some big returning shows uh, that made the list uh, this year after long delays returning to the air. Dan, Angie, you, you both... It's hard to choose where you want to begin here because you're looking at shows like Atlanta, Barry, Better Call Saul, Better Things. These are all some big, honestly, they're un, it's, it's not unexpected to see them here on this list. Where do you want to start there, Angie? Um, I will start with Barry, which I guess this year has just gotten even darker. I mean, it was always a kind of a dark show that kind of walked the line between like, it, like, is this a little bit of a drama? Is this a little bit of a comedy? It, it was always very darkly funny, but I feel like this season got got super, super, super dark, super bleak, in a, but in a way that, that I think remained really true to the characters and the world that it had built and even did still manage to get some very funny moments in there, very L.A. moments like that um, Bainet guy giving everyone advice that actually turned out to be great. So, yeah. Uh, and there were, I mean, as you say, there were definitely 
funny moments in this season of Barry. It, and, and I said this back when the second season premiered and I wrote my review of that. At the time, I posited that the show was basically a half-hour drama at that point. So then the fact that the second half of the season, last season, ended up being fairly funny at times kind of set us up this season for suddenly things getting dark and everyone having forgotten how serious the show was in the second season. So I think that's good that the show has that kind of versatility. But I thought, for example, the scene with Vanessa Bear uh, making sounds basically for three minutes was as funny as any TV scene of this season. So that is hilarious stuff. I thought that the motorcycle uh, chase, which is also in episode six, I suspect episode six is going to be their big Emmy episode and it probably should be because that episode kind of to me showed all of the things that Barry can be sometimes within the same episode where it can be intensely serious harrowingly intense at times because Bill Hader is a scary scary man and Sarah Goldberg plays scared and intense and also kind of scary herself very very well so yeah this this was a really really good season of of Barry I think <laughs> Yeah, and then speaking of intense, I mean, Better Call Saul is back after, I feel like it's been a while, and, uh, you know, we'll we'll see how things go. We're so close to the end at this point that I almost, like, don't want to talk about it too much, but uh, it's a show that has been really good throughout its run, and I feel like they, they did some really good things this season. I liked that they brought Nacho, uh, Michael Mando's character, more to the fore, because he's a character that I have often felt like was went a little bit underutilized in the past, but I feel like they've been doing great stuff with him. Patrick Fabian got his moment in the sun, um, which I which was upsetting, but also wonderful. Uh, and of course, Rhea Seahorn is continues to be my, the perennial like, why have not why have the Emmy people not already awarded her several times over person? So, yeah. Yeah, I have I have legitimately no idea what's going to happen on Emmy nomination morning if Rhea Seahorn is nominated, like if they actually end that particular national nightmare and just say, yes, she should be nominated. What will any of us complain about? Will the Emmy nominations be completely perfect at that point? And will we be bordering on silent and content? I think that at that <laughs> point, you just start getting ready to start yelling at them. Like, just just get ready in case they don't actually give her the statue. And then you can yell at them about that for a while. But, and I can always find things to yell at them about because, for example, she is going to be submitted as supporting actress. And I've been saying this now for a couple of years. There is no question to me that she should be a lead at this point. There, there is no question that that she and Bob Odenkirk are the the dual pivots of the show. It might have been completely Bob Odenkirk's show when it started, but to me, the show can't function without Ray Seahorn and without Kim Wexler. So to me, there's no question that she should be the lead. But then you're just getting into weird Emmy categorization things, like, for example, uh, in terms of submission, Inventing Anna, a true crime show that we haven't talked about as one of the year's best shows, because it wasn't. Uh, but they submitted uh, Julia Gardner as lead and Anna Chlumsky as as supporting. That that does not make any sense if you actually watched Inventing Anna. So categorization for Emmys is weird. No one else wants to share their favorite uh, Emmy categorization nightmares? That's fine. Only I can obsess about that. That's acceptable. <laughs> Well, don't forget nine. What is it? Nine Perfect Strangers, the Hulu lim quote unquote limited series, star studded limited series with was it? Let's see, Michelle, wait, Melissa McCarthy, uh, Nicole Kidman, and like a million other A listers, and it's being submitted as a drama series because guess what? That show is 
not officially yet, but it will be renewed for a second season. Isn't that what already happened with White Lotus? Well, White Lotus, it, it was renewed, but the the distinction that's being made, and this will, you know, we'll we'll circle around this over and over again because words have no meaning, and the Emmys need to adapt a little bit better to the changing tides of television. Uh, White Lotus, as long as it is an anthology, and as long as there are not the same characters in each season. It, it is allowed to be a limited series. The well, Jennifer Coolidge is reprising her role from season one in season two, which has a new setting and it takes place at a different White Lotus Hotel in Italy. So is she is is she reprising her role? I wasn't sure if we knew that. I, I just knew that she was that. coming back. Oh, OK. Then in, in that case, it's totally uh, it category. Should be fraud. A, it should be. Yeah, it should be a comedy series. There's no question about that at all. And in that case. Um, OK, yes, you talked about you talked about returning shows. I want to make sure that we at least touch on uh, Atlanta and better things uh, Two of uh, two of my favorites long term, but also two of my favorites short term. I think Atlanta kind of threw people for a loop this season by having almost half of the season be, speaking of anthologies, totally anthological episodes in which the main characters didn't appear in any capacity. And that kind of perplexed people who really wanted to watch Paperboy and Earn and uh, and Van and that gang every week and then kept tuning in to see a bunch of characters who they'd never seen before on their TV. Some people were a little thrown by that. Mostly I very much enjoyed the anthology episodes, so I was okay with it. A couple of them a little bit less than a couple of the others. Uh, still an audacious show, still a show doing stuff that no other show on TV is doing. So yay Atlanta and better things. I feel like I've sung its praises enough. And speaking of Emmy stuff, if they cannot find a way to nominate Pamela Adlon as director and actress, well, that's just on the Emmy voters because yeah, that's, that's some great stuff that she's doing and some really silly shit. If she doesn't get nominated for well, everything, and she's not going to. So, okay, there. So it doesn't matter what happens with Ray Seahorn. I'm going to be upset about better things. Yay! I'm so I glad knew. that you figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you'd get there. Uh, so did I. Yeah. It's really no surprise to see Barry and Better Things in Atlanta all on this list again. But let's talk a little bit about some of the new shows that have made the list this year, um, starting with one of my favorites, Heartstopper. Angie, I know you like this one a lot. Oh, it is just the most adorable thing that I've seen, I think, all all year. And it's not necessarily one that I feel like I'm watching and I'm like, oh, it's doing crazy things I've never seen before or anything like that. Like, there are lots of shows that do that that do that really well. This one is more like it is using fairly familiar tropes, but using them really, really well in a way that just, you know, in a way that just scratches that itch for cutesy teen romance and so in such a satisfying manner. Um, I, love I love the, the little, like, art that they do that they sprinkle in with the when they have these like glowing moments with like the little flowers popping up and little hearts here and there it's adorable it is the, yeah, the show is it's adorable. adapted from it is it's adapted from a comic and you can you could you could tell i didn't know that when i started but i could tell right away because of the things you were talking about where like you know if a, if a character is feeling like a little like you know warm and fuzzy you'll see like little sparks of like like i don't know suns or hearts or whatever like kind of doodles dancing around his head or something like that and it's not they don't overdo it so it's just a it's just a nice little touch but it, it, it's a really cute way I think to express because you know sometimes you go through life something something cute or fun or sad happens and you do feel like you have little sparks coming out of your head so I I love that the leads have such adorable chemistry and 
and this is something that I really appreciate about it. they also they actually look and act like teenagers because I feel like that's a problem that I have with a lot of shows where even when the characters are written to be 17 you look at them and you're like that guy's clearly 27 no these kids actually look look and act like kids they are so cute they have such adorable chemistry I know I've said the word cute like 10,000 times but it, if you look up that word in the dictionary it is going to have a still from this show in it so but is the show more cute or more adorable would you say <laughs> it's both why pick <laughs> but let's talk about some of the other brand new shows that have launched this year that have made the list and, and maybe some of the ones that didn't quite fit in with the, the top 10 can you guys talk a little bit about uh, what else is on the list and what nearly made it uh, definitely, it was a big spring for Apple TV+. Plus. They had a couple of the big shows that, that the critics were raving about for months at a time. Uh, I'll go first by saying that Pachinko was one of my picks, uh, and you heard our interview way, way, way back when with Sue Hu. Uh, and the adaptation of Min Jin Lee's novel, not necessarily a straightforward and linear adaptation, and some people you know, like the structure of the book more and better, and I understand that, but I thought that it did a tremendous job of doing a lot of very, very complicated things, whether it was the nuanced handling of uh, the language complications wherein characters are switching between Korean and Japanese within the same scene, and how do you make an American audience that might not necessarily know either language understand those two things are happening. I thought they did that very well. I thought they handled the passage of time very well. I thought they handled the... Uh, the context of Japanese occupation of Korea, etc. Very, very well, very smartly, tremendous cast, gorgeous production values, and just a big, big swing. And it's been good to see how much people have liked that show. I'll be, you know, I guess we're talking again about, or I'm talking again about Emmys, because it's always just sort of obsessing in the background. Uh, I'll be, I'll be interested to see how much Emmy attention Pachinko is able to get, because it could be the kind of show that basically takes the place of something like The Crown and becomes the kind of epic uh, period piece entry in the Emmy races, or alternatively, it could get ignored entirely, and that would be sad. Uh, Angie, you wrote up our, our severance blurb. Talk a bit about that little show, which is very different from Pachinko. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, Severance is one that I, I feel like it grabs you right away. You know, you turn it on and immediately you're just like, this looks, it, it's, something's off. It's unsettling. You know something's weird. And from there, I actually found the first couple episodes to be a slow burn, but it gets, it builds up to a really exciting finale that um, I'm just going to point out is not that long because I feel like that's the thing that I've been complaining about for a while now is that episodes just seem to be getting longer and longer. Severance's finale, I thought, was such a good example of like, see what you can do when you actually just like trim the fat and make it efficient. I, I know I'm getting a little bit ranty here, but, uh, you know, when you've no, sat no, no. through some bloated run times. This is a home for rants. And also, everything you're saying is not new from, to our listeners, because Dan has been on the same rant for almost as long as I've known him. Yes, when, when, sure. when it comes to praising a show for efficiency, you should never feel bad for doing that, because so many shows are not. And when you get a show like Ozark with its 65-minute, 70-minute episodes, and they think they're producing tension, and then you compare that to the last episode of Severance, which is just nonstop, edge-of-your-seat-holding-your-breath anxiety, you go, okay, see, you can actually do that in a very, very, very restrained running time, so... 
yay. And also, it's a really, really funny show. I, it's it's sort of both of those things. And I think that that's something that was kind of a barrier of entry for some people initially is they saw, okay, Ben Stiller's directing it, Adam Scott's starring in it, it's going to be a comedy. And it sometimes absolutely is, but if I had to describe it in one word, probably comedy would not be the first word, I guess. Yeah, and then going back to what we were just talking about, I feel like for Pachinko, it was the opposite, where I was, ex I hadn't read the book, so I wasn't familiar with what was going to happen in it, but it just sounded very, very heavy. It's just like, oh, here's this like story of intergenerational trauma and all that. I was like, oh, great. I mean, not that I'm not, not, I was like, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a good show, but it's going to be very heavy. And then when I watched it, one of the things that really struck me was that it has like, yeah, sure. It does. It definitely has a lot of heavy, very dark, very sad stuff, but it just also has moments of, of joy or just people, you know, kind of being people hanging out, being fun or having fun or being silly or whatever as well. So I really appreciated that. I mean, one of the greatest things about Pachinko is those opening credits, which are just a little burst of joy. And at first, the first, I think the first episode, I was like, oh, this feels really disparate from the rest of the show. It feels like it's just a completely different thing. But then I feel like one of the things that I treasured about it, one of the reasons why I will never, ever, ever skip credits, stop even asking me, Apple, is because every single time I watched it, like it would take on new meaning based on the episodes that I had just watched. So like you start to see more of like, oh, that's why this this particular person cuts to that particular person. And like, you know, you start to see the echoes and building more and more. So that was one of the things I appreciated about Pachinko. But uh, well, we talked a little bit about the Apple TV Plus shows. I want to talk about uh, another show that's not on Apple TV Plus that I really like that was in my top 10, uh, which is Somebody Somewhere, which was actually part of a weird little mini trend of shows for me about like sad women returning to their hometown and then like finding a place there or something like that. Like that show, it was that show. It was Life and Beth. It was Single Drunk Female. I don't know why I just had ended up getting assigned all three of those shows. And all of them were um, successful to varying degrees, but I particularly love Somebody Somewhere, which is something that just, I didn't, I, I wasn't really familiar with most of the people involved in it or anything. So it just came out of left field for me. And it's a show that is just so, you know, it, it kind of seems really mild and unassuming when you start watching it. You're just like, oh, okay, it's just these, you know, these people in this whole small town seems kind of boring, whatever, like the town seems boring. But the but the performances are so sharp and so funny and so uh, naturalistic and nuanced. The characters are just so instantly likable and vivid. And you start to notice that, like, it's one of the things that I really liked about it is that it does feel really unique, even though it starts out seeming like, oh, here's just another show about like random people in this town. Like they, they have a really you get a really strong impression of who these characters are, what makes them tick, what makes them. And it, it's a show that also kind of breaks from the what I think we've come to expect of like, oh, here's a bunch of misfits in a small town. Surely they're all dreaming of moving to the big city. But it's not about that. It's about these people finding a community in this town. It's very, very sweet and earnest, but it is also very, very funny. I laughed out loud so many times watching it. It's a really good show. And definitely, uh, if we were to go into honorable mentions, I think Life and Beth and Single Drunk Female would both be in my honorable mention list, absolutely, as well. I think uh, Somebody Somewhere is probably... It's probably the one with the most grounded undercurrent, and, and so it kind of resonates more as a result. But I, I definitely, Life and Beth surprised me because it surprised me how funny it was when it wanted to be, and yet how dark and sad it was when it wanted to be. Ditto with, uh, with Single Drunk Female, where it doesn't shy away from the ugliness of the main character's 
alcoholism and her recovery and her self-destructive streak, but it doesn't wallow in it. And so it's not a miserable experience. And any one of these three shows could be um, a totally miserable viewing experience. And I think they all do a very good job of finding hope. It goes back to what you were just saying about, about Pachinko in the opening credits is the opening credits of Pachinko are, are so damn good. And I've watched them so many times and there are certain moments in that, like the, like the young Sanja character dancing and people clapping for her as she dances. It's just a beautiful moment. And when you think that that show is a show about generational connectivity and so much of the connectivity you can't see in the show because the characters would never be interacting. The opening credits are a way to do that. They're a way to join this family together across the generations in a way that is is hopeful and joyful and and special. And I just love those credits so much. Um, and and there, there's another thing that I'll be pissed off about for Emmy morning. If the Pachinko opening credits are not nominated for credit sequence, uh, I will burn everything down. I, I'm fairly confident that that one I don't need to worry about. I think that they're good enough that even Emmy voters won't be able to screw that up. <laughs> okay, but the amount of threats that you just keep levying here, I mean... I'm starting to think that you're just looking for an excuse to do some arson. And you did start this segment talking about how you were doing so many crimes lately. I, and I'm, I'm <laughs> all, I am honored to have partners in crime with me. And so let me assure oh, you. Oh, shoot. Is it too late to distance myself from the <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is. You're on is, the ship, Angie. <laughs> if, if, if I'm going down, I'm taking both of you down with me. That is how this deal works. He's just pre-writing his Emmy morning critics notebook. That's all he's doing right oh, now. I thought I was, don't worry. Don't. I thought I was pre I thought someone was pre-writing the Daniel Feinberg arrested for arson on Emmy morning uh, story, which, <laughs> whichever one. It's it's pre-writing my professional obituary, however we want to put it. Um, I feel yes. like that's what Dan is pre-writing and that's what Leslie is pre-writing. <laughs> Fair. That's yeah. That's I work. So what that's what else? Do, what else do we want to single out while we're still talking? Well, you're 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 missing easily one of the, the year's most talked about performances, and that is Gerard Carmichael in Roth Daniel. Hey, that was a, that was in our top ten, wasn't it, Leslie? Good call. Yes. Where do you think I read it, Dan? <laughs> Any of the other people who have talked about how good Rothaniel was also. No, Ger Gerard Carmichael is is great. And I uh, my very first article for uh, THR on on the day I started working at THR in 2015 was urging NBC to pick up a new season. I don't remember whether that was the second or third season of uh, the Carmichael show on NBC. I, I think he is extraordinarily talented. And I think that this is his most personal piece of work and it's the latest in a long string of this is a comedy special but it's elevating the format and but we're not saying it's elevating the format it's just doing it so something like Hannah Gatsby's Nanette a couple of years ago would be an example uh the Bo Burnham special inside two years ago would be a good example and Bo Burnham directed Rathaniel which you know got most of its obvious for logical reasons got most of its publicity around Drod uh, Carmichael coming out of the closet as gay, and so that's definitely a thing that it's about. But it's also just about family secrets and how they bond families together and how they tear families apart. And it's a very intimate show. It's in a a dark, small uh, 
club venue and at various different points audience members ask him questions just because they couldn't keep the questions inside and he's happy to entertain the questions it's it's a really really good special and it's uh it, it then led into his saturday night live hosting gig which featured one of my favorite snl monologues of the year he is extraordinarily talented, and I'm glad that he got to have this moment. And I suspect that, you know, I suspect that this will give people a chance to talk about him more. And I, I hope that, I hope he has another TV series in him, and that he's not just going to go off and be a movie person now. Because I know he had a a movie at Sundance that he directed as well. So TV still wants you to Gerard Carmichael. So stick around, man. Maybe, yeah. So what? Maybe two Emmy nominations. Uh, very possible. No, he. Uh, I would. I definitely. I assume they will find way to ways to get Rathaniel a nomination. I will be interested to see if. Because honestly, again, if you want me to rant, I can rant about the SNL hosts in the guest acting categories. That's one that I'm always happy to rant about. But if he gets a nomination for that episode as well, I would be just fine with it. What else we got? Uh, well, we've been talking a lot about you know streaming and cable shows. I wanted to talk about briefly mentioned a couple of network shows that I really like this season, Abbott Elementary and Grand Crew, which has been, I feel like for while they were both on, they were just, that was like my Saturday morning routine. I would get up and catch up on the latest episodes of both of them. Uh, they're, and, and neither of them are necessarily ones where I feel like, oh, it's reinventing the wheel, like Abbott Elementary is a workplace sitcom, Grand Crew is a hangout comedy, but they're both doing it really, really well. I, you know, Abbott Elementary is, it's, it, I felt like, it felt to me like it was somewhere, it started out somewhere a little bit, bit between Parks and Recreation and Superstore, like it's kind of in that vein. Um, but as it goes on, it very much de develops into its own thing with its own really colorful cast of characters. I especially love every single time Gregory looks at the camera. Sorry, Jim Halpert, but I think he's outdone you in that regard. And uh, Grand Crew is one where it's just, it's just, it, it, it's just a bunch of people being silly. And it's, it's not one of those, it's not one of those shows that pretends to have grounded storylines. The storylines are deeply silly in that way. It reminded me a little bit of Happy Endings, which R.I.P. was one of my favorite shows while it was on. Um, but, but yeah, so it was like, it, it's just a show where you just, you tune in every week. These people are being sometimes a little, sometimes mildly horrible, usually deeply silly, doing very, very goofy things. And it's just, it's just a pleasure to kind of sit down pour a glass of wine, see what, see what they're, see what shenanigans they've been up to. Okay. The pour the glass of wine part, I would say it runs counter to your saying that it, this was a Saturday morning ritual for you, but I don't want to judge how you. It's a metaphorical you... <laughs> glass of wine. Also, there's a thing called mimosas, so I will not be taking any judgment from you, Mr. Arson. Calm <sighs> down, Dan. Calm down. Stop Ap yelling. Apology, apologies for brunch shaming you. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, uh, those those are both really good broadcast shows. I would also add American Auto, which I don't think was quite as successful, but also had moments uh, as well. I think that this was a a very, very good year for new broadcast comedies, particularly if you go back to last fall with things like The Wonder Years as well. But uh, those things that we were talking about mostly were 2022 premieres now. So, yeah, lots lots of good TV, as the kids say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, look, I'm not a critic, but, I'm, but I do want to give a shout out to a show that I've spoken repeatedly about uh, in recent weeks, and that's Queer as Folk. Um, I'm a diehard fan of the Showtime version. Love the original. Thank uh, God bless Russell T. Davies for coming on uh, the TV's top five for It's a Sin, which got me to go finally go watch the British one on Amazon. And I found the Peacock 
update, the reimagining of it to be just so true to the spirit of what that franchise is. And it remains one of my favorite shows of the year. And then if I'm going back, honestly, you know, my, my standouts so far, I really loved Euphoria, which comes as no surprise to anyone who knows me. Um, and I may have already seen A League of Their Own, which I enjoyed. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, you know, the actually we have a great showrunner spotlight segment coming up for a show called The Bear on FX on Hulu, which I also really enjoyed too. So those are just a couple of ones that, that stand out for me. But um, for more on the year's best TV shows, head to THR.com and you can also follow on Twitter. Yes, you can always follow all of us on Twitter. Angie, give the kids your Twitter handle. You can find me on Twitter at A-J-H-A-N. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Angie. It has been a delight, but not too much of a delight. I don't want to be associated with any crimes. (laughs) We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Number four. Our guest this week is Joanna Kahlo, the co-showrunner, writer, director, and producer on FX comedy The Bear. Before working on the culinary dark comedy, which is available to stream in, in its entirety on Hulu, Kahlo's writing and producing credits included BoJack Horseman, The Babysitter's Club, and Hacks. Thank you so much for joining us, Joanna. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning. There there are so many interesting creative pieces to The Bear. The, the series was created by Christopher Storer. Uh, you came on your showrunner and director and producer. It features Atlanta veteran hero Mariah among the executive producers. Talk us through how all of these pieces came together, including your involvement. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, this was a project that had existed for a while. Um, and it, it's sort of funny in that way that it existed for a while without me and it was a feature and then it was a show and then it was Chris and Super Frog and then, uh, but kind of sort of stuck a little bit. Um, and in the way that shows sometimes do get stuck. And then um they wanted to bring on a showrunner, um, and that's me. And it sort of just took off from there. And I, I think, you know, sometimes you just need new energy. I also think that Chris and I got very lucky in that we had a very symbiotic, collaborative, joyful, natural um, process together. And so I think, you know, adding someone new adds energy to a project and bumps it up. But I think also when the two of us came together, it really sort of, um, took it, took its final shape. Um, and so, yeah, literally my manager said, do you want to 
read this thing. I said, fine. I thought it had this amazing um, energy to it and it had its own language. Um, And also I saw things about it um, that I wanted to change. And I also saw myself in it and all of that made me go like, yeah, okay, let's, let's do it. And, and, and luckily, um, Chris felt the same when we met and, um, and it kind of happened fast. It was sort of like, okay, now let me, you know, give notes and start to shepherd this. Um, and that, that led to, new versions of the scripts, uh, the first two scripts, which existed before me, um, as well as conversations about casting. And quickly after that, we were given the green light to do the pilot. Well, talk us through how the script that initially attracted you is different from the actual first two episodes that are, that exist. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's funny because I feel like the soul of it is completely the same. And because again, the language of it and the specifics and the grounded nature, that's all him. And I, I mean, it's something I love and something I try to do as well in my own work, but you know, that, that was what was the most alive thing about it. And I wanted to, to keep that at all costs. Um, One of the things that changed was we actually one of the things that changed greatly ended up not being put into the into the final pilot so it's sort of a a funny up and back but I do think that we wrote um a big explosion for Jeremy um sort of getting at this thing that happens in kitchens which is that you know the hot temperatures and the close quarters and the sort of abusive cycles um often lead chefs to yell at each other and so there was this big moment for, for Jeremy to freak out at everyone. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if you've seen the series, there, there, you know, are moments like that later on. Um, and so kind of when we made the pilot, we decided that we were able to draw that out, you know, for longer. But I think, I do think that it um, showed FX what Jeremy could do and what the show could be. Um, and there, that was something exciting to them. Um, and also Sydney was supposed to appear, appear first in, um, episode three. Um, and I loved her and I said, let's get her in. <laughs> so those are, I would say those are the main, um, as well as the, the flashback stuff at the beginning of two, you know, we really wanted to, um, show what people what this world was that he'd come from so that you could help sort of understand how big of a change he had made from his old life to his new life. So we have to ask the, the obvious question here, what is your own food service background? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I do have food service big background. Um, I have never been a chef. Um, I very much am a huge like Ruth Reichel fan. And I was a huge Jonathan Gold fan and very much like, you know, grew up um, listening to Jonathan Gold and learning about Los Angeles and understanding how cities are affected by food. And so because of that, I've long been um, a lover of that world and a reader of that world. Um, but my own food experience is that I, I worked in the dining hall in my college, which um, very embarrassing. Um, <laughs> and also I worked at, um, an ice cream store, um, in New Jersey where I'm from. And I, I absolutely loved it. I never got tired of eating ice cream. I still crave ice cream to this day. And, but I was terrible at it. Like people, I would act, take people's orders. And then by the time I would turn around to get 
the ice cream, I would have forgotten what they would have said. So I did not, I knew that I would be a bad waiter. And so I, I skewed away from, from food service because I, I would have let everyone down. I mean, and to that end, you know, how essential was it to have a writer's room where food service stories were really important? Like, did you look for that in, in some of the backgrounds of the writers that you hired? You know, um, I did look for it in the backgrounds, but we were incredibly blessed with Maddie Matheson, um, as well as, you know, Chris has his own um, experience and background in the chef world and his sister, Coco, who also came on to be um, a, a, you know, help us with the food. They would come and tell us their stories and um, we we ate them up. You know, it's like the, the stories were so good and so vibrant and there were themes um, running throughout them that that we could pick up on. And so I think, yes, like definitely only hired writers who had had jobs. <laughs> um, but but also I think you we had such amazing access to these really detailed stories of of real life chefs that um, our writers were able to sort of you know get to the character stuff and focus on the character stuff, but also focus on the larger themes that are there about running a small business and um, found family and, and all the themes that hopefully people are feeling in the show. Well, it feels as if in any given week, half of the unscripted shows on television are about food and, and restaurants and that as kind of an environment. But for whatever reason, it's, it's a genre that has been really hard for scripted programming to crack. Uh, I'm curious, as you were trying to build out stories and build out this world, were you able to get a sense of why it has been so difficult to get a really good restaurant show on television ever, really? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I I love that question. I like I feel so proud that, that people feel that way. That was 100% the goal. And I think we felt like there was room in the genre for something more authentic. I think like you know, I'd be curious what, what those writers' rooms were like, you know? Um, we, again, we had such amazing access to to people, but I think it was our goal. It was our goal to be authentic and not to hide away from some of the things that actually make it real, which is the way people talk to each other, the insane hours, the anger issues, the, you know, I think... Yes, we also made sure that people drank water out of delis and, and that's, that is an accurate you know, detail. But I think, I wonder if people wanted to clean it up a little bit more. Um, and in, in fact, you know, some of the grime and the grit is, is really what makes it what it is. It, obviously, Kitchen Confidential as, as a book has sort of become the the central text of how we experience restaurants, but there have been many others. Were there specific inspirations that you guys were looking to in terms of things that you wanted to be inspired by or the other way around, trying to avoid yeah. overlapping? Well, you know, um, I, th I think in regards to avoid overlapping, it, it was more like all of it, you know, and, and ju just because it was like, let's just be different. Let's just make something that feels new and feels unique. Um, and that's something I think that Chris and I were really united in. Um, I really was inspired. There are so many great books, you know, um, I really loved reading David Chang's book, um, which was, um, I absolutely loved reading. Um, and also, um, there was, 
there was a really interesting review that came out um, about David Chang's book that was written by one of his chefs that sort of acknowledged that even though he wrote this memoir um, about, you know, acknowledging the mistakes perhaps that he'd made, um, that she sort of didn't care. <laughs> and um, so I certainly was inspired by that and felt like there was an energy to that book and that response that I wanted to bring to the show. I love that. You know, I, I do want to talk about the cast. You know, this does seem like a role that was written with Jeremy Allen White in mind. You know, obviously he's returning to Chicago's South Side after 11 seasons on Shameless with a role. And honestly, this could have just felt like a Shameless sequel just about Lip. But can you talk a little bit about what the appeal was, what you saw in him when you cast him that made him right for this role? Um, you know, I have always been a huge fan of his. I think like he pops in that show. Um, he is a star, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's something there. And I, I had always been a fan of his and then sort of left live action and wasn't really thinking about him. And so when I joined this project, I was delighted that he was at the top of Chris's list and actually they had known each other and talked about it a long time ago. I think, you know, Chris, it's less about knowing that um, Jeremy has been to Chicago before, but more that there is a there is a soul to him that I think feels of that city or cities like Chicago. Um, and you know, to be honest, our casting process we we met a lot of great people, saw great people, but you know, he was he was always the top of the list. Where it's like, well, Jeremy's almost too perfect for it. Like, do you even do you even go to Jeremy? You know. Um, but at the end of the day, he was always too perfect for it. And we were lucky that he said yes, you know, um, because, yeah, I think he's he's so incredibly talented. Absolutely. You know, and let's talk a little bit about the supporting cast, too. What what else were you looking for in casting it? Because, you know, look, kitchens are in, an incredibly diverse place and your show definitely reflects that. Yeah, I mean, and that was, I think, another thing that really drew me to the project is like the characters were so exciting and set up to really get to be co-workers without kind of feeling forced, um, which sometimes diversity can feel these days in television. Um, and so we really, two things we were looking for, um, surprising people, the most exciting people, just like the, and people with kind of kindness at their center as a way to like ground some of the, um, sharper edges of the show. Um, and you know, uh, Lionel and Io were people that Chris had worked with in different ways. Um, and, uh, and Eben was someone that we both really admired, um, and kind of, but just found through the casting process. I think also like, you know, one thing to mention is all the people that we cast were willing to read, um, which was a really interesting process to navigate. And that wasn't about that wasn't even about them showing us how good they were. We knew how good they were, but it was a way for us to meet them and, and talk to them and see if they wanted to work with us and see if they kind of could have um, a, a shared energy. And um, sorry to sound woo-woo, but, but I think like the, the whole like, you know, offer only thing um, was really interesting for us to navigate. And I think part of why our cast is so spectacular is they they all were willing to to show up and and it, it we really appreciated that. Yeah, I mean in this in this era, everyone it feels like everyone even even the people you wouldn't think yes. are offer only. Meaning for our listeners, 
that you're they're not willing to come in and do a reading for executives or showrunners, but instead you just have to offer it to them sight unseen because of their stature. So anyway, I digress. Oh no, I, I, it was it was interesting for me to to navigate that as well. I'm a first time showrunner, and I was like, they don't want to talk to us, like they don't want to read, and the, you know, I I feel like it's so beneficial to both of us and to both parties. And, um, I'm just so grateful for our actors because I mean, yeah, they're amazing. And they took the time to, to show up. That's all. (laughs) But it's also because it's only eight episodes and only eight half hour episodes. There are an awful lot of people back in that kitchen who we've only seen for a scene or two. So as you're in the process of putting together this first season, how often were there times where you had a detail about someone and you're like, yeah, we just that that's just not the story of season one. Let's stick that aside and it'll be in season two or season three. Yeah, I mean, um, a, a lot of times, uh, mainly we had <laughs> we we had a mini room b- before we got the official pickup and we'd actually broken 10 episodes. <laughs> so there were two full episodes that either are for hopefully later or jammed in. Um, but I think, you know, I, I also think, yeah, there's a lot of specifics about um, all of our characters that we know and kind of like hopefully hopefully you feel them even if you, you don't hear them. And, and yes, it would be great to tell those stories, but I also think like having that information fueled our actors, even just in the background of a scene. So, you know, you know, and at, you know, just like a quick follow-up here, you know, have you and Chris talked about an arc of the show? Like, do you have an, an idea for how many seasons you want this to run? I mean, it's hard for, you know, in this peak TV era for anything to really cut through, let alone to get more than two or three seasons. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we, we've talked about a couple of different versions. I think uh, we, we feel like less is better, <laughs> but also now, now that you see, this wonderful cast together. It's hard to imagine, um, you know, stopping them if we'd be allowed to continue. But I, you know, one of the reasons, and I I won't say what it is, but one of the reasons I, I'm remembering that I wanted to do the show was when he told me his plan for season three, I said, well, I said, sign me up. So at least hopefully we'll at least get to that. let's go back to the the trimming from 10 episodes and just the general shape of the season because you know there's a lot of intensity to the show and i think that the intensity is probably amped up by how tight the show is but how did it end up being a half hour show how did it end up being eight episodes rather than the 10 you mentioned and and how did it end up getting the all eight episodes dropping at once yeah i mean some of those things were decided before I came on. So I think that the half hour discussion, what had happened before I was there. And, but I think that, you know, Chris and I really stayed um, true to kind of what we wanted the voice to be. Like, I, I think, you know, that, that it really is in that dramedy space. And so I don't know what conversations he had or if FX thought it would be funnier. Um, but um, I think like, they, they had sort of sorted that out before. And I do think like we're saying, it's like the, the tightness of the kitchen also feels to that. It's like, would you really want to be in that kitchen for more than half an hour at a time? You know, it's like, I think you, know, you need, you need a little credit break um, to get you through. But, um, and then 
it was, you know, these things were honestly just told to us and we were so grateful that FX wanted to make the show that we were like, okay, oh, sure, yeah. You know, but they, I think they had done eight with reservation dogs. And so that's sort of what their policy, um, their current policy for new, for new comedies, or at least that's um, their, you know, their current policy. I don't know if it's new or ongoing. Um, and... And then, yeah, I have this, I'm like answering very poorly because I don't, I don't like really, these are all things that they all decided for, I'm sure, algorithmic reasons, <laughs> which I understand is how everyone makes um, decisions now. But um, in regards to the dropping all at once, that was also, um, you know, there, I think, when did the Disney thing happen? I feel like that was part of it. Or it's like all of a sudden now we're everyone's one network and everything's going to be moving to Hulu. And so... You know, we're, we're now FX on Hulu. Um, it was sort of just decisions made. <laughs> Sorry, that's a terrible answer because it's literally like, yeah, someone, someone's in. <laughs> but I feel like there has to be a certain amount of confidence that you've sort of told the stories you need in the half hour format and that somehow somehow that has to be like almost a leap of faith. Like I'm thinking specifically of of the seventh episode of the season, which which involves a large blow up but also is only a 20 minute episode. And it's, I think it's a 20 minute episode because the episode is so intense that if you went any longer, people's hair would be falling out. But how do you know when you've told as much story as you need to tell and that you don't need to pad it out just because 20 feels like a short episode? Well, I will say, I mean, to FX's credit, I feel like they really trusted us to that like we believed we would tell the story because of the actors that we had. And so sometimes these things are short or there's small amounts of story, but we knew that the talent in these people, that these stories would be, would come through, you know? Um, and I think like it also, you know, it originally being a feature, I think we often tried to think of it as still just one big feature. Um, and so you don't want to, you know, how could we, tell the story without hitting people over the head with it. How could you, is it a different experience to just live in this kitchen and kind of get lost in the food and letting the food, you know, represent connection between these people as if you're making a musical and there's a dance number. And, you know, I think, I think again, to, um, to try to create something that felt a little different, we wanted to tell stories in our own way. Um, I will also say in regards to episode seven, it's all one take, which is why it's 20 minutes. It's, it's just really hard. It's really hard to, to, to time out exactly how long you're going to, it's going to be. And it was different times each time we did it. And so, um, yeah. Um, you know, I think like that one was an exciting experiment and hopefully the, the height of all that are, that our amazing crew and amazing cast had to had to offer everyone. <laughs> Speaking of the not wanting to hit people on the head, uh, were there specific tropes or conventions of the genre that you specifically said, yeah, we're just, we just don't want to do that. Or, or maybe we'll save it for season two or season three. We just don't want to lead with the familiar things that people expect from a restaurant comedy. I think we really want to never do any tropes ever. I think like, I think, I think to me, the tropes, you know, you know how like sometimes tropes are actually accurate. I actually feel like with, with chef shows, 
they're not accurate. Like they're, it's, it's so much posturing um, and so much ego. And like, obviously Carmi has an ego, you know, he, he, he speaks to it and we see it and we see that his, his confident, his confidence, but he, he also is incredibly tortured and has an insane life where he works, you know, 20 hours a day and then like shoves a peanut butter sandwich in his mouth. So I think like our understanding of at least this, this kind of chef and, and this, this kind of kitchen was that, um, there was, there's not place for those tropes. Um, yes, at least for now, we'll see, maybe we'll run out of ideas. But it can be little things like, for example, my editor, when I when I turned in my review, his first question is first question was, are there vermin? Because he didn't want to watch the show if it was going to turn out that there were roaches or mice or rats. And that's the sort of thing that I feel like you see a lot, not just because of Ratatouille, obviously, but, you know, without that, that's the kind of thing that you see all the time in food shows or the uh, you don't want to know the nightmare of what happens if you send a sandwich back to the kitchen. Those kind of things Were, were those things that you really just did not want to engage in? I think honestly, just the focus for the first season was building these characters and that that's as far as we got. And I think like, I, I, I know what you're saying. And I think part of what you're talking about is also like, um, has a lot to do with like customer fears and customer interaction. And I think that was just like not on the table for us um, this season. Yeah. One of the things that I really, really liked about the show is, as you said earlier, the found family versus the real family and how this really kind of combines the the two, because this is, you know, an all-star chef who returns home to help rebuild the family business after his brother's passing. And, you know, one of the things that that I think is, is so great is the way that that found family becomes the real part part of the real family because it is a family business too. But can you talk a little bit about how that worked in the writers' room and what inspired that that larger theme? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly that larger theme is what made some of the people at at FX the most excited about it from the beginning. That if we could create the best version of a work family, you know, I think like I love. I've always loved the idea of writing a show where it's a place that people want to work. And I feel like the bear is like half that and half where you never want to work. But I think this idea of like, you know, we all right now, we're all craving connection and these workplaces where we're shoved up against people that we maybe wouldn't normally connect with can be some of, you know, the strongest relationships that we have in life. Um, And I think the idea of, putting that on Carmi as someone who really struggles with his own family, but kind of can't help, but um, try to kind of push away intimacy in, in his work life, but it's like, it's all around him. Um, And there was just so much sweetness that always kept seeping in, even if we would sort of write it as like, you know, he really plotting out his path with Sydney and, you know, the ways in which Richie was, you know, um, combative with everyone and um, problematic and all that. There was always this this softness um, from, a, from a script level. But, uh, you know, then again, I would just say with our cast that that kindness makes that family thing feel so good. I think all the time about there's that moment in episode four when 
Carmi and Richie come back from doing catering the party and Lionel has made, excuse me, Marcus has made um, ice cream and they all just sit and have ice cream. And I, it's just like the sweetest thing. And I think again, like um, it's, it's lovely to just show those moments of connection rather than necessarily have to talk about them. So hopefully, hopefully that's how we accomplished it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, where things leave off at the end of the finale, and obviously I don't want to spoil anything here since the show is just coming out, but it does feel like the finale sets up what could be a very, very different second season should be, should you knock on wood, be lucky enough to get a second one. But how much of, of that second season have you outlined and how different does it seem like it will be, at least at least in your mind? Very little. Do you have any ideas? I, I think the, we are drawn to the what, what will be different. We are drawn to the differences. That feels exciting to us. And again, hopefully unique. Um, but also there's still stories about the past that need to be told. So I think we're hoping that there could be a little bit of both. Um, but we'll see. I want to talk a little bit about your journey here, uh, because leading up to the bear, your run of credits goes Bojack Horseman, Undone, Babysitter's Club and Hacks, which are on one hand, those are some tremendous shows and several of my favorites. They don't necessarily seem to have all that much in common. And I guess I'm curious, has avoiding repetition been a personal strategy for you? And which of those niches were hardest to break into or break out of for you? Um, not a personal strategy, but a personal desire for sure. And I think when you're a younger writer, everyone wants you to be incredibly specific about exactly who you are. So they don't have to guess that much. <laughs> and I think a lot of us, we want to do a lot of things and we want to, we want to learn a lot of things and we want to play in different areas. Um, and so, you know, I think honestly, I was lucky enough. Bojack was such a great show and I spent so many years there you know, growing as a writer and growing in confidence that when I was sort of released out into the world, I was lucky to be a, you know, upper level female, um, not entirely white. Um, <laughs> and what, you know, so it's like, I think I, I was really lucky to be able to say, well, what do I want to do? Um, and one of what I really wanted to do, honestly, was write for women and with women, um, which is why the bear is kind of a funny aberration. Um, but also why, um, you know, Sydney was, is such a, is such a joy of mine. But, um, so I think that's really what, you know, Undone came from the Bojack world, but it's, it's female, you know, and then Babysitter's Club. Um, I mean, who can say no to Babysitter's Club? Come on. That's a, that's a childhood dream. So, and also women and family. And I had just had a baby. Um, and then, same thing with Hacks. You know, I read that script and I just thought it was spectacular. And it was two different women talking to each other. <laughs> and um, it just seemed like an easy yes. And I think um, I'm overjoyed um, that I've gotten to do all these different things because in the beginning, it felt like that wasn't going to be possible for me. Um, so yeah, I feel lucky. You know, you also have an overall deal with FX. Um, what are you working on and, and what's next for you before hopefully the second season of The Bear? Yeah, I mean, um, 
We'll find out about that soon. Um, but in the meantime, I, um, I'm just sort of getting started and meeting all the amazing people that, um, also have deals with FX. I also, um, am in development on another show there called how to date men when you hate men, which is based on a nonfiction book. Um, and it's awesome. And I'm really hoping they'll let us make it. Um, all women, <laughs> um, uh, you know, a, a feminist relationship show. Um, and then I also, um, wrote a feature that I'm, um, hoping to direct. So, um, we'll see. Since you mentioned the directing, that is something that you've added to your arsenal with the bear. Um, was that some, were you looking for a project where you could be directing as well? Um, I have always wanted to direct, but, um, I literally just had my second baby and was absolutely not looking to, <laughs> to direct, but, um, Chris very beautifully and, um, self-assuredly said, no, I just think we should do it. And, um, I, and I love that about him. And it was an opportunity that I waited for forever. And also one I couldn't say no to, even though my child was six months old. So, um, I just sort of, we, you know, let it rip, um, as Michael would say. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just going to say, let it rip. Yeah. Um, you know, and we do like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying outside of the bear cuts? Of course. Yeah. Um, oh, I love that question. Um, I am watching Stranger Things, even though it's a little too scary for me. Um, I'm watching I Love That For You, um, which I really love. Um, what else? Am I, I know I'm watching something else. I've been watching We Worked. Oh, all these answers are so boring. These are just all the shows that people watch. Um, watching We Worked, I think Anne Hathaway is amazing. Um, and Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Um, because I'm an American. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you guys so much. It's nice to talk to you. All eight episodes of FX's The Bear are now streaming on Hulu. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got FX's The Bear, HBO Max's The Gordita Chronicles, Apple's Loot, plus new seasons of The Umbrella Academy, Westworld, and Only Murders in the Building. Plus, during the July dark week, uh, you've got the Terminal List on Amazon. Dan, lots to pick from. What you got? Jeez, Leslie, there's so much darn TV. Drink. Anyway, uh, <laughs> just like to like to give the kids what they come here for. Uh, but seriously, though, awful lot of TV. Uh, <laughs> you heard our great interview last week with Alan Yang and Matt Hubbard, uh, the creators of Apple TV Plus's Loot. So you heard them discussing why it's kind of subversive that this does feel a lot like an NBC multi, an NBC single cam comedy that for some reason is on streaming. Well, that's what this does feel like. And the, the shows that I would compare it to and compared it to in my review are Parks and Recreation and The Good Place, which would be very, very good and hopeful and positive comparisons. But there's also a fair amount of Mr. Mayor to this as well, which is a less great comparison. And yet, as I, have talked about on the podcast several times, Mr. Mayor is a show that successfully kept me watching week to week because it was just funny enough and just likable enough to keep me going. So even at the worst for loot, it kept me going. 
at its best, it is a solid showcase for Maya Rudolph, who is just absolutely fantastic and always is absolutely fantastic. And uh, the role here, as you heard in our interview last week, it'll remind some people of Melinda Gates, of Mackenzie Scott. There has been there have been a recent run of high profile divorces involving tech billionaires and their wives who have then become basically primarily philanthropic um, facilitators using their large, large, large settlements and actually doing good with it. God bless them for that. Uh, so, yes, it is a very good vehicle for Maya Rudolph. She is extremely funny. She's extremely well paired with Joel Kim Booster, who, of course, everyone is excited about because he wrote and starred in Fire Island and everyone is hailing him as a genius, which, you know, TV fans and comedy fans have known for a while. He is extremely talented. The supporting cast is full of people I really, really enjoy. I've talked for years about how Ron Funches is one of those actors who, when he pops up, I can't not smile. Listening to him do his his laughter and his comic timing, he always makes me amused, and he does that here as well. It's a very good part for Nat Faxon, uh, who probably since... The Fox classic Ben and Kate hasn't really had a vehicle that let him be both funny, but also effectively sincere. And I think he's doing that as well. There's something disappointing anytime loot becomes basically just a straightforward workplace comedy. And it does that somewhat often in the middle of the season where it's just, okay, well, now these characters are just working in an office and, and nothing else really particularly matters. It's just them working in an office and it isn't really always inspired in those moments. And I wish it were a little bit, a little bit tighter in those moments. I wish sometimes that it had a little bit more commentary on its mind by the end of the season. It definitely does, but in the middle, it meanders a little bit. There are definitely also supporting characters who after a full season of television, they have no characteristics at all. There, there are two members of the office team, Ainsley and Rhonda, who have at most one characteristic apiece. So minor disappointment there. Uh, but in general, this is the kind of show where you can imagine how it would get significantly better in subsequent seasons in the same way that uh, the Good Place got better in its second and third seasons in the same way that Parks and Rec got many, many, many times better after its first season, etc. So I think there's definitely potential for things to kick up a gear. Um, and for now, if the show is just good and full of people you like, well, that's that's a good enough reason to watch. Um, speaking of, well, not really speaking of anything you mentioned HBO Max is the Gordita Chronicles, and it's the, I believe, third straight week that we've had a really, really charming coming-of-age comedy with a young woman of color. And I and this is, they're all completely different. This, Mrs. Marvel and The Summer I Turned Pretty, no other connection other than, isn't it nice that these stories are being told? Uh, the Gordita Chronicles is a story of a Dominican family that moved to, that moves to Miami in, I think it's the eighties at some point. Uh, and they experience a culture clash and it is, it is primarily more than anything else, just a pleasant and likable show. It, it's only occasionally laugh out loud funny, but I would say that there were lines of dialogue or deliveries in every one of the episodes I watched, and I've watched six episodes, that really did make me laugh out loud. So 
you know, if that is your prerequisite for what a good comedy is, uh, it, it does somewhat fulfill that. I would say that it is a slightly younger skewing show. The, the focus is on kids in junior high. And while there's a little bit of kind of background sexuality and, and stuff like that, it's, it's really background. It's, you can mostly, I would say, probably watch this with family, but the show definitely has things on its mind involving the immigrant experience and clashes of culture and all of that. And I think it does those things very, very well. The young cast is extremely charming and pleasant to watch. It's definitely not the kind of show that you would give over your full attention to and watch episodes multiple times and pick over the details. But basically this week I've been kind of using an episode or two as my end of the night wrap up my brain television. And because Angie reviewed it and gave it a positive review, um, I wasn't taking notes, which always makes me happy when I can just watch a TV show without taking notes. And yeah, I, and I, I absolutely will finish watching this one as well. I, I haven't finished watching, uh, the summer I turned pretty, I've been watching Miss Marvel on a weekly basis and and have been fairly impressed by how well that show has handled its coming of age aspects, even if the superhero stuff still feels a little bit more in the background than necessarily some viewers are going to want it to. That's just that's just how these things go. You can just deal with it. Anyway, I, I like the hmm? I just finished the summer I turned pretty, Dan. And did you and did you like it? It was very, it was cute, but it was a little rough at times. But I, it's, I, I like what they were trying to do. It's definitely not. It doesn't redefine television. It doesn't redefine the coming of age story. It has some elements that are a little bit fresh, but also, you know, if you if you like Gilmore Girls and if you liked Outer Banks, but you were annoyed by the uh, by the treasure hunting aspects. Anyway, I said this I said this last week when you expressed incredulity at the fact that at the end of the, the by the summer, she turned pretty. <laughs> yes, I do remember doing that. Uh, but it was cute. You know, it, it was described to me. Uh, what, what got me to watch it is a colleague describing it as equal parts Dawson's Creek and to all the boys I've loved before, both of which are things that I enjoy. One of those far more than the other. If you know me, I've always been a Dawson's Creek diehard. But yeah, it's. It, it, it's cute, but, you know, there are some, you know, the writing is a little rough here and there, and it's just, you know, some of the performances are a little wooden, but, the you know, the, the leading uh, girl on the show is is terrific, so, and the music is is fantastic, so, glad they renewed it, it'll be a nice, it's a, it's a good summer binge, if you, Absolutely. you know, there are some things that are beach reads, this is like, you know, a beach binge, there you go. 100%, so, so yeah, that was, that was Gordita Chronicles, um, speaking of things premiering this week, you just heard our our interview about the bear and the bear is a show that to me gets the restaurant experience, right? It feels correct. It feels chaotic and cacophonous and also sometimes nurturing and, and, uh, and nourishing in ways that feel like the experience of working at a restaurant when you believe in it, as opposed to necessarily the experience of working at a restaurant when you just need to, get from the end of high school to the start of college and earn a couple bucks, which is many people's food service experience. That is my primary food service experience was Papa Gino's between high school and college, uh, which I believe came up in the conversation with the good people of 
hacks back when we talked about them, because I feel like Jen Statsky uh, had Papa Gino's experience that she wanted to share. I believe family legacy involving Papa Gino's, if memory serves from that interview. Uh, it is a it is a great vehicle for Jeremy Allen White, um, who was always top notch on on Shameless, even when Shameless sort of got chaotic and spun off and it's weird shamelessy direction you can just say when shameless was bad sure absolutely when shameless was bad he, he was he was never the reason it was bad and he always did a very good job of making lips self-destructive tendencies somewhat sympathetic and i think he does the same thing here um it is an easy show to rush through it's only eight episodes they're only a half hour piece one or two of them are even shorter than that. But if you have these experiences, and I don't even necessarily know that it has to be exclusively film service. I think it, it film service, uh, food service. I think any, any job you have in a entirely too contained claustrophobic environment where you don't necessarily like the people all that much, it can be a restaurant. It doesn't need to be. Uh, it, it captures that experience and some people will want to bathe and wallow in that experience and other people will immediately get hives and want to run screaming. So I think either experience is entirely <laughs> justifiable and whichever thing you want to feel, you feel. But I think you'll get pretty quickly if this is a place you want to be cramped and uh, and in for eight episodes. I, I believe you like this one as well, right? I loved it. Honestly, you know, I and I'm someone who stayed with Shameless from the very, very beginning to the very end. It feels like a role that was tailor-made for Jeremy Allen White. And it also kind of feels like an extension of Shameless to a certain extent. It's like he's trading one dysfunctional family for another, but only he's kind of the one that, that's that's grown. It's, it's fabulous. And I love the cast. Continuing with things coming out, the new season of the Westworld premieres this weekend. Owing to the timing of the review embargo... I really can't talk about it here. <laughs> but but if you know my feelings about Westworld previously, I'm going to tell you my feelings about Westworld continue to be my feelings about Westworld. But my review is also sure to be up on uh, on the Hollywood Reporter website. It's my favorite <laughs> show to watch and not understand what the fuck is going on at all. <sighs> well, at guess, all. Like, guess what? No guess idea. what? It will continue to be the case in season four. And that's all I can spoil owing to the embargo. Um the embargo has, however, lifted on only murders in the building on Hulu. Uh, one of those, it's it's sort of, it has become this profoundly strange thing when a show comes out and the second season is a year after the first season. It's like, wow, we're getting new episodes of this already? That already, this, this happened with Hacks uh, last month or two months ago when it returned. It was, my God, I can't believe that we're already getting new episodes of this because it hasn't been two and a half years since we last saw episodes. So definitely. Yeah, I had the same feeling the other day when I saw the poster for season two of Reservation Dogs. And I'm like, didn't that just air? It's coming back in August. It, which indeed is another show where it did just air a year ago. <laughs> that's Felt sometimes. Like yesterday. What that's is time, Dan? <laughs> what is time? That is some. That is how this goes. So yes, uh, it feels as if it's been way, way, way surprisingly recent that we got the first season of Only Murders in the Building, and now we have a second season. And the second season is 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 good. There's no. Uh, there is neither a gigantic drop off in quality nor a leap if you thought that there were things about the first season that were um, 
I don't know, inconsistent or where you wanted them to dig deeper into one thing or another. The show is the show. It is still smart and funny. It, the, this season's murder mystery, I would say I found, I found it a little bit less, um, engaging than the first season, but not by a lot. Uh, critics have been sent eight episodes. So again, like last season sent most of the season, but not the last couple episodes. It happened that the first season, had a really, really good finale that really did stick the landing as a mystery. And so uh, that was good. We'll see if this season does as well. It's still just a a treasure to watch uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short be zany and loopy. They definitely have opportunities to do the same things they've been doing. There's a real pathos and undercurrent of sadness to it. I continue to think that... Uh, that Selena Gomez is the the standout. I know some people are not fans of of what she's doing on the show. I continue to find that she makes me laugh more than anyone else on the show. Her her deadpan is is a marvelous marvelous thing, and I like watching it at work. There are some new additions to this season. Cara Delevingne has, uh, I believe it's Cara Delevingne. Sorry about that for those people who. Our sticklers on such things. Uh, Cara Delevingne has a supporting role as an artist who comes into Mabel's world and turns things a tiny bit upside down. And she's okay. It's not really her show. It continues to be really the lead's show. And that's entirely fine. Isn't she doing another season of Carnival Row on Amazon? <laughs> I, I like periodically mentioning to people that that's a show that exists. That, that thing's had like six showrunners already. And it's only waiting for season two. And it aired when? Like in 2019? It aired a really long time ago. It was built up and built up when it premiered because it was exciting that there was a show with fairies and magic and Orlando Bloom and stuff. And then nobody talked about that show. So, yes, there's definitely a second season that's coming at some point featuring more floating fairy sex and stuff so <laughs> i love detouring you dan i really just led you to say fairy sex that's all that's that's what i'm that's what i'm here for uh our our sometimes colleague gene bentley did a really really good interview largely about the fairy sex uh time to the first season because it's important because when does fairy sex make you float? And how does the zero gravity of it all work? And et cetera. Carnival Row has absolutely nothing to do with Only Murders in the Building, which is back for its second season next week. And it remains a very likable, smarter than average show. I do not think it's a great show, but I think absolutely it is a show that is fun to watch and good to have back as quickly as it is. And you mentioned the terminal list. Uh, starring Chris Pratt and directed at least in its pilot by Antoine Fuqua. It is based on a, a potboiler military thriller and it is absolutely a 95 minute movie that somebody decided needed to be stretched out to eight episodes for absolutely no justifiable reason whatsoever. Um, I've watched a couple episodes. I will watch definitely more because I will review it because once I've watched as many episodes as I have, I am definitely pot committed. Uh, so yeah, it is. There's definitely an audience for it. I do not question that there is an audience for it. And there is an audience for it that will be happy that it takes everything as self seriously as it does. I'm probably not that audience, 
but maybe the second half of the season will turn things around dramatically and it will become great. I am not holding my breath for that, but absolutely a thing. Uh, so yes, so running things down, Apple TV's loot, kind of a broadcast comedy on streaming, but my Rudolph is great. Michaela J. Rodriguez, really good, really, really good cast. Um, definitely enough elements to keep you watching and maybe season two, it will actually fully live up to its potential. Uh, the Gordita Chronicles, probably young skewing, but very likable and pleasant as coming of age stories go. FX is the bear. You will know if you are too stressed out within probably five minutes to keep going with the rest of the show. But if you're not, I think lots of people really are going to like that show. Only Murders in the Building is basically what it is, but in a good way. Westworld continues to be what it is in the way that it does. And yeah, the terminal list is definitely going to make some people happy and other people are going to be like, dude, I do not need to watch this. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more from Dan and Angie. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth at least Somewhat. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc., etc. But if you have questions for future podcasts and future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. And really quickly before we say farewell, we wanted to acknowledge the passing of someone near and dear to both of us. Rest in peace to Barry Guerin, the Hollywood Reporter's former chief TV critic and a former TCA president, a friend of many, a lover of people, a lover of television. He was a gentle giant. And every time I saw him at the office, I was lucky enough to be his copy editor for the first part of my career. He was so easy to work with. And when I saw him in later years at TCA, after I made the transition to reporter, he always, always, always sought me out at tour and made it a point to stop and say how proud he was of my growth professionally. And it was just like getting, you know, a, a, a fabulous acknowledgement from your grandfather and he, he will be dearly missed. Truly one of the, as you say, gentle giant, truly one of the gracious, kind men of the TCA. The TCA is not an organization of people who are necessarily always kind <laughs> because we're grouchy and we're critics. But Barry was not like that. Barry was was nurturing. Barry was a fan of television. He was a fan of the organization. He was a fan of every person in it. Uh, we could not hold meetings without him because he was the only person who knew Rogers rules of order. So we relied on him for, uh, for parliamentary procedure and for making sure that we did things the right way. But really that's kind of a bigger point. We relied all of us on Barry Guerin for how to do things the right way. And he was truly a, a role model and he will be missed. And a reminder, our next episode comes July 8th. Dan, until then, aloha and mahalo.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.